0: For years, we have been instructing our sales reps in the technology industry to sell value, not features, with, let's admit it, mixed results. Now the mantra of value, not features, is being driven into our product organizations. I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, I will be joined by TSIA researcher Laura Fay and product executive Steve McLaughlin from Blackbaud. We will be exploring the concept of products that climb the value ladder, which is the title of a chapter in our upcoming book, Digital Hesitation. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute, and we are on a mission to help our member companies run profitable technology business models that unlock real business value for customers. We perform deep operational benchmarking with the technology companies that are on the TSIA platform It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series so here we go laura and steve welcome and let's do some quick introductions and and laura remind our loyal listeners about your responsibilities at TSIA
1: hi thanks thomas great to be here today Um, i'm the vice president and managing director of research for what we call our products and offers area Um, So that includes everything uh, related to product management for the X as a service business model. Also, I oversee the service offer portfolio research, which uh, others on the team kind of deep dive into. But collectively, it's products and offers.
0: Awesome. Well, welcome back. And Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your role at BlackBot and a little bit about what BlackBot does for a living?
2: Sure, Thomas, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm Steve McLaughlin. I'm a Vice President of Product Management at uh, Blackbaud. I'm responsible for our fundraising, financials, and payments part of our portfolio. And Blackbaud is the leading cloud provider of technology and software to the nonprofit sector. We've been around for over 40 years, wow. which uh, is pretty amazing in this space. And we only work with non-for-profit organizations, foundations, and corporations who are trying to drive social good. So it's a very unique, I think, part of the technology landscape that we operate in, and have been for over forty years now. Well, that
0: has to be rewarding. I mean, working with companies or, or institutions like that that have a mission—that that has to sort of carry over to the people at Blackbot in terms of mission-driven type of mentality.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been here just over 18 years, but I spent the first part of my career in the the corporate space. And it is a very different dynamic. You know, we're not trying to sell more shampoo or right. bottled water or something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we're really trying to do is help enable our, our customers to sort of achieve our mission. So it's a different dynamic for for sure, and it's, it's very rewarding too. Yeah,
0: well, awesome. Well, welcome to Tectonic, and we're going to talk about products that, that, that climb the value ladder. And I'm going to start with you, Laura. So you wrote this chapter in our new book, Digital Hesitation, which we're very excited. is going to be coming out soon. And the The chapter is actually titled, Products That Climb the Value Ladder. And a main point you make in this chapter is that the growth of technology providers is now way more dependent on helping their customers realize true business value. Describe what impact that is having on product teams.
1: You know, first, let me say how excited I am about the book. Uh, It was a fun process to bring it to life. And, More importantly, it it really reflects, I think, the unique perspectives that we have across every function, the degree of interdependence of of all of these teams to bring these products to to life and make them successful. Um, Specifically in the chapter you mentioned, products that climb the value ladder, you know, I make the case that there needs to be really a seismic shift in the industry and how product management goes about the process of creating value for customers. Um, You know, we live in a world now where the reality is, is that customers don't really care about a company's product. I mean, they they care about it to the extent that it directly solves or tangibly contributes to solving uh, the business problem that they have.
0: You just put a tear in the eye of every product leader listening to this podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, theme. you know, feeds and speeds—the <laughs> shiny object—we've been enamored yeah. with that for a very long time. Yeah. But the and and you know, as technicians, many of technologists, many of us, right? We we kind of are enamored with our own products. But ultimately, yeah, it's about solving that business problem. Um, and I think you know, getting crystal clarity on on the customer outcomes um, within a given sector or even subsegment of a sector is is job one. And then, you know, right after that is being able to really understand how uh, the value proposition contributes to the outcome that the customer is after, and then can that be measured? Can we make it tangible? And and actually, in the research, you know, when we see and working with companies uh, day in and day out, that when companies can tangibly measure and report on that value that it opens up huge opportunities for things like value aligned pricing, right? Which is a trend that's gaining significant momentum in recurring businesses. That's actually a topic of another chapter in the book uh, entitled Outcome Aligned Pricing. So I actually uh, make a pretty controversial statement, I think, in in this chapter to help teams to do that hard pivot to these practices I kind of suggest that CPOs might be inspired to rename their product teams to value management teams to really make the point towards shifting the mindset and the related practices from feature function to measurable value. Um, And, you know, the growth of recurring revenue and the scalability of those businesses are really kind of dependent on that.
0: And I mean, this is definitely a pretty significant pivot that we're talking about for product organizations. And Steve, I want to bring into this conversation, Laura wanted to to make sure that you're on uh, Tectonic, because she does believe that BlackBaud is leaning into this concept of focusing on business value. So tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing and the type of business value that you unlock for your customers.
2: It's interesting, you know, we've been going through this transformation for a number of years now, as I noted, you know, we've been you know in business for over 40 years. And so we've had to make that shift from, let's say, the traditional old school licensed software world to a SaaS approach. And that's both a transformation of our business, but also how we engage and interact with customers. And what's been interesting is as a part of that transformation, we, too, have had to make this shift from, let's say, uh, feature focus to more of an outcome value oriented focus that it's it's no longer like, you know, the feature wars are over and everyone lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're only competing on features these days, you're likely not around for long because the, you know, unlike a decade or two decades ago. The, the barrier to entry to getting into any software business is much lower than it was before. So your advantage can't be we have a better feature because tomorrow someone could ship code that
0: matches, you know, one
2: ups that yeah. you've really got to have the focus on the value side. And we specifically have been looking at where there are different areas where we can help our customers from either a revenue standpoint. So how do they grow their revenue? How do they maintain their revenue? Or also maybe in, where are there opportunities for them to reduce costs? Because in a lot of ways, a reduction in cost is value, mm-hmm. right? It, it gives yeah. an opportunity for growth in those areas. But it is, it's absolutely a transformation. It's uh, because oftentimes, you need to separate out what I call choosers from users that the chooser of the solution might be the chief development officer, might be the chief financial Mm -hmm. officer. They may have different value goals or or outcomes they're looking for that are different from a day-to-day user. Mm -hmm. And certainly what I've learned and I think our teams have learned, we've got to be able to satisfy both the chooser and the user. You don't get to pick, you have to do both. And thankfully what we're seeing is not only when you can demonstrate the value, but have a value conversation with a chooser, it's a much better position to be in than just talking about feature function stuff and yep. you know, a matrix of what do you do versus what do the what do the other solutions do. Having that value discussion is something that we found is much more effective with not only attracting new customers but retaining existing ones as well. Yep.
0: So I have a follow-up question on this journey in terms of locking with value, but I want to step back because you mentioned the fact in this transformation that you've had to go through from a traditional software company to a SaaS company and also from a focus on, you know, transactions and and feature functionality to one around value. In the book we call that the Innovator's Dilemma squared because yeah. it is, you know, the classic innovator's dilemma is when you basically have to change technologies. So, hey, you know, we used to sell tape, you know, backups, and now, you know, we have to do disks. Okay, that's the classic innovator's uh, dilemma. But we call it innovator's dilemma squared because you also simultaneously are changing your fundamental business model. And it's huge for for all the legacy, you know, uh, software companies like yourself. And I'm curious, talking about product management, what type of initiatives did you have to give that team to get them more locked and loaded Around pursuing customer value, how how did you help shift their focus, their mentality?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, for a number of years, we've really focused in on customer discovery, and not just in, and not focus groups and mm-hmm. not surveys, but literally spending time with customers and users and watching what they do with our solutions. And, and not getting in discussions about should the button be bigger, or should the button be blue, but what's the thing you're trying to do? Yep. Or when we get feedback from an idea bank or a webinar or an interaction with a customer of not just taking the, the feedback at face value, but keep asking why. Well, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Sort of the five mm-hmm. whys approach, yep. I think is helpful. And I think we, we, you know, I know at least myself and, and people with our teams I don't have it handy. There's a Neil Gaiman quote that says something to the effect that, you know, when you ask someone, if something isn't working, that when they tell you it isn't working, they're almost absolutely right. But when they tell you how to fix it, they're almost absolutely wrong.
1: <laughs> and so
2: You can validate that the this is a problem, right? Hey, we're really struggling in this area. They're probably right. But their recommendation is if you just added a button or a list or a feature, if you had just added this feature, it would be fixed. That generally doesn't pan out, and, and so what we found is we have to do a lot of dis- customer discovery. That's iterative yeah. to find out how do we, how do we get there, and in many cases it involves leapfrogging from what they do today or what they have traditionally done mm. to something that's different but is is delivering that value, and it's just I mean, it, it's a cultural. My, I think it's what I would always say is to people is that it's more mindset over skill set.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. You know, you've got to have this mindset of that's what we're trying to do versus you can, you, it's not all down to a reading a book or, you know, checking a box.
0: Well As I listen to you, it's it's a new capability or skill set around listening to the customer almost more intensely. And Laura, you know, I, th- I think about your work around the digital customer experience and lowering friction points and really studying the customer journey all the way through right i mean i think that's something that for a lot of product teams that is a new muscle is is that your observation when you when you look across product organizations
1: oh yeah absolutely absolutely um we see you know even in the born in the cloud companies an important focus of course on getting feature function right and getting it shipped out the door but then once it's shipped out the door, what happens, right? And and kind of really staying connected with that through the life cycle, I call it from, you know, shifting that frame from concept to launch mm-hmm. to concept to consumption. Yep. And, and really kind of focusing in on, okay, what we have put in the market, is it actually being used the way we intended? Because we all know, Microsoft Word's a great example of this, right? I mean, how many of us use more than 10% of the functionality of, of that application? It's so powerful, but how is it really being used on a day-to-day basis, and are there opportunities to really understand those usage models? And as Steve was just talking about, I love that quote um, around, you know, if you ask someone what's wrong, they're usually right, but if you ask them how to fix it, they're usually usually wrong. And we we very often fall prey in product management to this responding to feature requests, right? Mm -hmm. Responding to the squeaky wheel who's asking for a request and not stepping back and going, okay, what problem are we trying to solve? And how do we solve this for everyone in an effective way that is going to deliver a satisfying experience?
0: This is a good bridge into this topic about how product teams are working with customer success, because to to really understand where the customer is tripping, where the friction points are, that handshake becomes very important. And Laura, I know you're doing some research in that area. Share what, what you're seeing in terms of how product teams and customer success teams are working more effectively together.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a few years back, uh, together with my colleagues in the customer success research practice at TSA we began to look at this important relationship between product management and customer success. And if you think about it, this is customer success didn't really exist prior to these recurring revenue models. And therefore this relationship between product management and customer success never existed in an era prior to recurring models as well. So, or either. What we learned is that companies need sort of really be thinking about this as two bookends, right? We're creating value. And customer success is helping customers realize that value. And depending on how we create that value and what attributes our our product experiences have and our offers have, um, that can create either headwinds or tailwinds for the downstream teams. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, recently we resurveyed the membership um, testing on critical attributes that sort of correlated with high adoption and high rates of ARR. um, And we found that... The relationship is, is improving between these teams in, in, in important ways, but just 4% of participants rated their product management customer success relationship as excellent, right? Mm-hmm. With fair slash ad hoc, right? Being the most selected ratings. And that was equal, equally consistent between those that weighed in from product management and customer success.
0: So both sides of the fence feel there's headroom to improve here
1: oh no question yeah. about it no. Um, no question about it and and i'll give you three practices actually that we found to be correlated with higher rates of of product adoption and growth one is when both teams have shared adoption goals right so used to be product management would set the goals and customer success owned delivering on them right but now there's sort of shared accountability for product adoption mm-hmm. Um, second one is when there's a more formalized process of engagement, the right things start to happen with respect to focus on adoption. We see product management starting to allocate more roadmap capacity for adoption-focused features, right? Um, for example, and then the third area is, you know, given how relatively small the product management teams are compared to their uh, customer engagement size of the customer engagement teams. Product management um, are able to leverage the customer success teams to s- scale their customer intelligence in, in a variety of ways. So those are probably the three kind of big things that we saw that when these this collaboration is a bit more mature, that it's associated with higher rates of adoption and, and growth. And these are the practices that we see in that.
0: That's awesome. That's fantastic. And so, Steve, what, what have you done within the BlackBot environment to get a better handshake there between product management and CS?
2: It's, it's been interesting in particular the past 18, 24 months. So as I said before, customer discovery is really important. So the more time we can spend face-to-face with customers and users, we feel like we get a better result. And then along comes a pandemic. And it alters your ability to do that in ways that you previously done, where we would do a lot of in the field work. And that just becomes challenging because everyone's remote. and you've got other unfun things going on so one of the things we were actually able to leverage because of having a good relationship with our customer success organization was you know how do we recreate that in the aggregate well everyone in customer success whether it's a professional services person at an implementation a customer support person who's uh, responding to an issue or or a customer success manager who's you know working with a with a customer on an escalation or maybe just you know uh, new capabilities we could use the customer success organization to recreate that discovery effort at scale to mm-hmm. say what are you collectively hearing where are there groups of organizations or customers that you know we'd like to go learn some more about this who are the right people to talk to and so it's really become a, a way to sort of um, deal with that at scale and then for us to then zero in on where you know the feedback but also where can we do some of that um discovery work in ways that um are just different than before yeah. well i
0: mean think about it. i mean customer success ideally should be one of the most powerful listening posts that a product organization has beyond yes, beyond absolutely. it out and it's really a new piece on the chessboard i mean you go back 6 7 years ago um a lot of tech com- companies did not have customer success in place, or have it really, you know, at scale, <laughs> right? So it's really a new capability that we can be leveraging the heck out of, right? So you'd want that, you want this handshake between product teams and CS to be, is absolutely as tight as possible. So I think you know th- that's an important lever everybody should be l- leaning into. Um, Laura, I, I want to go back to this challenge though on transformation we were talking about sort of this innovators dilemma squared and i know that you work with a lot of you know product companies that are going from a traditional capex model they're moving and migrating into more of a, a recurring model as you watch product teams make that pivot what are the biggest challenges that that they face as they as they go through that
1: for product teams making that pivot, there's there's plenty of challenges, right? I mean, just like we were talking about crafting value propositions that are really aligned to the outcomes the customer is after, and then mirroring, if you will, or aligning pricing to that as well. There's also the, the notion of designing the product experiences that naturally drive adoption and consumption and thinking about that in in a pretty consistent way. I think, you know, I would say sort of the biggest one, if I look at all of the challenges and some of the engagements that we do, one of the biggest ones that product leaders have is is really having the knowledge and having a foundational set of information about the business model that they're designing for, mm-hmm. right? And what we find is that they often, teams often underestimate that, right? So they sort of understanding the economic model, understanding uh, the unit economics, understanding the drivers that are going to optimize for revenue capture along what we would call right the revenue waterfall of, of, of annual recurring revenue, or the impact of their designs on the cost of customer engagement. So grounding the teams in some of those shared language, some of those foundational concepts can make a big difference. But that is one kind of big challenge. It's like operating with your hand behind your back sometimes if you are designing for a model that is different from what you've been designing for for the prior few decades.
0: You know, when, when I talk to executive teams that are starting that journey, I like to tell them, look, everybody in this room Needs to get an MBA in as-a-service business models. You need to understand <laughs> that the product folks need to get that MBA. The sales, both, you know, finance. Everybody needs to get an MBA in these new business models. And I th- what I see is executive teams just underestimate that learning curve. They're like, hey, I've been oh, in tech. Absolutely. I've been in tech for 20 years or 30 years. I, you know, I get tech. It's like, yeah, but this is a completely different way of operating. And I'm curious, Steve. You mean you had to go through this power curve? And and at Blackboard, what advice would you give a peer, right? Somebody who is leading a product organization from a transactional to a recurring business model, you know, into SaaS, et cetera. What would you tell them to focus on?
2: Well, I, I think the the main focus is focus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not to be all Zen, but um, we had a lot of focus from leadership here on what were the key things that we were trying to drive as a business and having that come from leadership, but also supported by, you know, the folks who are in the trenches every day, I think certainly helps. You know, like I said, we've, we went from a 100% license-based software company to now we're over 90%, probably well over 90% of recurring revenue as a model. Mm -hmm. So we made that switch while it wasn't easy, because if it was easy, we would have already done it. But I think showing ourselves that, and sort of uh, the rest of the company that we could make that transition was proof that we could then go in and, and, and you know, look at other areas where we could make that type of mm-hmm. shift. Right. So, OK, great. We've we've shifted that revenue mix in a really good direction. Now, let's look at more leading indicators versus lagging mm-hmm. indicators, because, you know, revenue is. Is a pretty lagging indicator. Right, right. <laughs> There's lots of things you could look at upstream, like usage, satisfaction, a lot of those things. And I think part of it's just that that balance there, right? You know, to be a point where we're now 95% of our revenue is recurring. What can we optimize next?
0: So, so when you started that journey, you said you know really focus is is important, and I am very sympathetic with that because I think a lot of executive teams don't provide that laser focus when they're when you're going through a business model transformation. Can you give us an example of one or two things that the executive team did focus on at the beginning of the transformation and that they really messaged strong and said, hey, this is how we're defining success? Anything that you r- recall from the early days?
2: Yeah. So one area in particular, and I think this is partly because I, I came from the professional services world prior to BlackBaud and even when I first started here, was we had a, a pretty good business and still do in the professional services part of what we do. But that tends to be one time. Revenue, not recurring right. revenue. And when you get into these discussions about change, inevitably run into what I call the death by whatabouts. That's a good idea, but what about right. this? Right. What about this? What about that? And one of the whatabouts was, well, what do we what about professional services? If you're saying we want to get to a much larger percentage of recurring revenue, what does that mean for one time revenue, professional services? And the guidance from leadership was, well, again, the objective is to increase recurring revenue. So if you're telling me that means we need to think about services in a different way to achieve that objective versus preserve the status quo, then that's what we have to do. And that forced us that clarity of, you know, well, when you said you want to achieve this, did you really mean that? And the answer was yes. Then we thought about it in a different way. We did a lot more bundling of professional services as part of the subscription, which prior to that would have been heresy. But now is just like is just how we do yeah. business, yeah. and customers like it too because then the cost and all that t- stuff is, is much more predictable as well. So it was having that guidance. Um, what what was the objective we were trying to achieve, and then just getting some clarity on, you know, uh, you know what about this, what about that, and leadership sort of sticking to it, which I think was really helpful, and that allowed us to make transformations in parts of the business where historically we wouldn't have done it that way or may have found excuses not to do it versus reasons to do it. So I think that was certainly helpful. Well, yeah,
0: I always tell executive teams, you, you, when you're going through a business model transformation, you cannot have conflicting first principles. And what do I mean by that? You can't say, look, well, you know, w- we need to absolutely grow recurring revenues. Oh, but by the way, we don't want to see any type of drop in our project-based revenues. Well, those are kind of conflicting first principles. <laughs> so what is the true... North Star, right? What are you really trying to prioritize? And what I hear from you is that, you know, the executive team did a good job of making that crystal clear, which then then the company can execute to that. And you can you can make some real progress instead of what you often see is this thrashing motion, right? Where people are getting sort of, you know, it's a pinball. game. It's like, oh, care about this? No, you got to care about this too. And it's just, you know, becomes um, unsustainable. The
2: other thing I'd add to that real quick, Thomas, is also, you know, I've, Worked with KPIs and OKRs and all those metrics things over the years, and and no matter what you're using, it's important I think to reiterate that like not everything is the key result. Not all the results are key results, or not all the measurables are the key ones. Yep. That it's okay for you to be measuring multiple things, but but having a lot of clarity on when in doubt, <laughs>
0: this
2: this objective trumps it. That's right. Right, and and giving people the ability and autonomy to make decisions so that they don't have to ask should we or should we not do this but they know because it's been made clear you know when in doubt this is what we're trying to achieve right we're trying to achieve um you know uh, a higher customer gross revenue retention rate okay great so that that means what i can and cannot do once you have that clarity and um, not the ambiguity Yep. and
0: and for all you senior people listening out there i can tell you that the one thing that is is driving your direct reports crazy is this lack of clarity especially if you're going through a business model transformation that you they are pulling their hair out when you are you're not providing what Steve just articulated of, hey, this is the Trump success metric. This is what we absolutely have to focus on over the next year or whatever the time frame is. And, and when you're mushy on that, or you keep changing your mind, um, you know, you are just you're just making you know everybody crazy. Um, so so w- w- we talked about the handshake between customer success and product. I want to open this question up to both of you uh, about how product teams build m- more effective bridges. To all these service organizations, right? To a support Steve, you put on the table professional services, um, you, you know, their education services. How do product teams? Because you know, Lori, you and I talk about this a lot. You know, often there is a bigger chasm there than we want between product teams and these service organizations, and we're just we're kind of leaving good things on the ground with with, with that chasm. So, so what are your, What are your thoughts uh, in terms of how we can get better here?
1: You know, know, Thomas, of course, that I've written about this uh, and talked about this many times, um, this relationship between product management and services in general. Um, And when we say services, I'm assuming in that you've got support, you've got professional services, managed services, education services, etc. And I think that There's opportunities and there's challenges there, right? So I think on the challenge side, you know, I think about product management is represents on average in your average OEM company, about 5% of the size, combined size of the entire customer engagement uh, teams. Mm -hmm. And then everybody has a dependency there, right? So... You know, sometimes you hear folks saying, well, how come we can't get product management's attention, right, we, we, did, we just never, we don't hear from them, or, you know, we have this dependency. If they would just listen to this feature, fun- get this feature function for us, our customers would be happy, whatever it may be. And I think ultimately what you're looking at is a challenge of scale, right? You're looking at a challenge of dependency and scale. And so you have to ask yourself the question, how do I, if we look at people, process and technology, how do I now start to apply process and technology to, to that challenge to, to kind of mm-hmm. really scale it out? Um, simple things, you know, having a shared and transparent view of how you assess value, right? How you're going to make a decision about something that is going to go into the roadmap, rewinding all the way to our earlier conversation about aligning to value and outcomes well, having a, you know, a, a well uh, understood value assessment framework that's appropriate for the particular part of the portfolio can get to faster decisions, right? If if the services teams, for example, are, are contributing to that and providing certain information um, upstream. So that's one area, but then also the product teams providing technology to assess all of that at scale, all of the inbound capabilities. And to the point Steve was making earlier, or you at uh, the BlackBot example, leveraging those teams for product management to give them scale, right? Because they want to, their job is to keep the finger on the pulse of what's going on with the customer and to do all the customer discovery and understand the use cases so they can build an awesome solution. But there's just not enough of them. There's not an mm-hmm. army as we all know, right? So how do they apply process and technology to engage with their um, services counterparts? And uh, and make that a reality, and make those experiences a reality. I think there's in as a service. I also see a little nervousness sometimes on the service side, like oh my god, you know, the digital experience is going to shrink our team. Um, I think the reality of that is yet to be borne out. Uh, although human fears can always be ahead of th- those realities, but uh, they are the closest to the customer and and the closest proxy. So. Pulling them into the tent and having them part of the design process is, is absolutely essential. Um, and we see that happening as well. So there's a number of different things I think that teams can really effectively do to apply process and technology and inclusiveness to get scale uh, into the situation, which is critical, right, for as a service.
0: You know, your comment about service teams being nervous that, you know, a digital customer experience will reduce the need for services. I mean, you know our point of view on that, which is mm-hmm. uh, that's not going to be what's going to happen. It, it, what it should be doing is enabling services to move up the value ladder with their customers. That's that's the journey we're all on the more you can you can take things that are frustrating the customer take friction out through a more effective digital customer experience is going to free your you know your customer success manager to move upstream in terms of strategy with the customer your, your professional services person to move upstream instead of you know fixing things that are broke or and frustrating the customer so i mean we see nothing but upside there for the services you know team in terms of digital customer that's, experience that's
1: right and i think at the end of the day what we realize is that the Every company's only scale, the only scalable differentiator is the digital experience. And so if you wanna grow and you wanna be able to grow ultimately profitably and and align all of the services teams, right? To engage more strategically with customers, um, it's an imperative for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Steve, what what are you seeing there to link with with, more effectively with the service teams?
1: You know, I, I think
2: the big change is recognition by everyone that the product is not just the software, but mm-hmm. the product is the whole customer experience. The
0: complete offer.
2: And that's outside in, right? Yeah. A customer yes. would say, I don't just think of the product as the buttons I'm pushing and the things I'm doing, but it's when I need help and I call into support. I think that's it's all packaged together, right? Definitely. And so that in a lot of cases, I think has been a helpful way of aligning different groups who may have... In different parts of the organization, to say, yeah, but but the customers focused on the entire experience. So how do we improve the entire experience? Because that's that's really what they're looking for. And again, okay. I think that's a mindset thing. Yep. Uh, if you got to sort of buy into that, that's the way in which you know technology is and is only going to increase over time.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, the the research that Laura's done here on value realization. You know, Alora, I'm speaking for you, but you, know, you can't separate the thoughts of I have a product and then I have service emotions. You just can't separate those thoughts to drive value realization. Those two things are absolutely, completely intertwined. And, and I think the more that both the product side of the house and the service side of the house internalize that and operate with that, you know, mentality, the better. For the customer, there's just I don't think there's any any doubt about that. I have one more question I want to slip in on you, Steve, and that is, and you already put this on the table, that you started your uh, in PS when you joined Blackbaud, and I think you were in PS before that. And we've had other guests that follow what we call this spiral career path, right, where they're in one part of the company. Like, you know professional services then like yourself over the product or they're jumping to customer success um, what are some of the advantages that you think that has brought to you by coming from PS and then going to the product side of the house
2: yeah it's been a, it been an interesting journey for me and and others who are on the team I think part of it's the realization product managers aren't born they're created we, we all come from somewhere and at least what I've found has been beneficial from my perspective, and in hiring really talented people over the years, is individuals who have that outside perspective. Right? They've actually spent time with customers, or have been customers, or mm-hmm. have a direct link on that. Right? I yep. I say this all the time. I definitely have a bias for domain expertise because you know I and and our teams can can train you and help you and guide you to be a great product manager. But that domain knowledge is really hard mm-hmm. to teach, if not impossible. So coming from that background, I always felt it was helpful because I'd worked firsthand with with customers. Yeah. I understood their perspective. And I think Laura mentioned this before, right? It's not about what do you write your code in and where is it stored? Some people care about that, but most don't, right? They just wanna know, am I able to achieve the outcome I want? And having that professional services or a customer support or customer success or even from the customer experience, I've always found to be uh, invaluable and really helpful to building strong teams.
0: Hey, Laura, what I heard there was that product leaders should be recruiting more service people to be product managers. That's what I heard there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, I think I think that you, you were hearing that from um, Steve's uh, personal experience. And, mm-hmm. and I'll just add to that, that, you know, that movement of people into different functions that we are seeing in the industry, more people moving from the services realms into product. And I think it's for that reason that, you know, in as a service, you, you can't just get away with focusing on the tech. Right. You've really got to understand the customer and you've really got to uh, to listen and deliver things that are aligned to to the outcomes they're trying to achieve. And so probably no surprise that we're seeing that that um, inbound, if you will, uh, movement into uh, into product management, not seeing it really in the other direction which i think is quite Mm -hmm. fascinating i personally i would since i'm you know at my core a product person who did a tour of duty and customer success for quite a while i actually think the industry could massively benefit from a bi-directional tour of duty if you will across these respective functions to really kind of just up our empathy overall not only for the internal functions but obviously for the uh, for the customer yeah know, the, the customer and their and their outcomes and the yeah i think that's
0: a i think that's a, a a great thought i mean how do we get more of that cross-pollinization both ways between product and service because as laura as we know they've got to come you know again they got to be joined at the hip in these new models there's no doubt about it so well hey lauren steve thanks so much for, for coming here and you know sharing your expertise on driving, you know, value through the product because I mean, the TSIA and the content in this new book. I mean, we strongly believe that this is one of the key growth levers technology companies need to be pulling if they're going to be successful in the long term. It's not about feature functionality. Um, and as always, I like to end with the big question of the day. But but today, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mix it up here. I'm going to end with an observation: if ease of imp- implementation and uptime are the value propositions of your product, you have not yet started to climb the value ladder. Thanks for listening, cheers.